my father is the only brother of six sisters. <laughs> and I am the only brother of two sisters. And we have two children, both of them are daughters. So when Pastor George said, the men of this church are on a retreat, and so this Sunday would be an ideal Sunday if I could come, and I, I gladly accepted it, because I, in a strange way, I always feel at home with women. <laughs> I was speaking at a mops meeting, you know, I was just hanging with, with a bunch of uh, young mothers, and we were having fun. Um, Pastor Josh and I um, have had developed a very good relationship. We get together for coffee, and um, um, I also know this church fairly well. 2017, I have guest preached at this church uh, a few times. That was all sanctuary. Some of your faces are very familiar, so I really appreciate this opportunity to come back. Uh, Pastor Josh gave me the freedom to speak on anything that I wanted to speak, um, and I thought uh, it would be a good time to talk about prayer. Um, very often, prayer is something very Sunday schoolish, you know, uh, uh, very basic um, some way. Uh, but in my spiritual journey, quite often now, you know, now I'm the the senior pastor at Lake Avenue Church, a year and a half into it. Even today, um, some people came to me and said, hey, what's happening there? There are a lot, we heard a lot of stuff are happening at Lake Avenue Church. And I'm like, good thing or bad thing? And I don't know, <laughs> you know. Um, but whatever you hear happening, and I remember my first Sunday at Lake Avenue Church as a senior pastor, I gave them three priorities. Uh, the first one was create a culture of prayer create a culture of prayer. So whatever is happening, I hope at least the good things are because of uh, people are getting into a culture of prayer. Um, so I remember, you know, that's the only thing the disciples of Jesus asked him to teach them. Can you believe that? They went to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray. Really? If I were there, you know, I would have, I would have liked to learn that trick of walking in the water, you know, you know. I mean, there are so many things to, to learn from Jesus. Really, prayer, you haven't learned anything. But they knew that, that prayer at its very foundation is the one thing that turns everything around, right? So when we keep the first thing first, uh, the Lord's blessings will be on us as a community. But the scripture I read today, uh, I just wanted to say this in advance, it has nothing to do with prayer. Uh, I'm pretty sure that Jesus was not even thinking about prayer when he said the parable of Good Samaritan. But I realized that your pastor has prepared you well uh, with that series uh, titled Stories Along the Way, uh, that you would be good interpreters of stories because one of the reasons Jesus told stories is that as opposed to a dogmatic lecture, stories have multiple layers of meaning. It can, it can come alive depending on your conduct, depending on your situation. Uh, it, can, it, it can be a living entity to communicate 
to you the truth of God in various ways. That is precisely why, in my opinion, uh, Jesus told story, not to make things simple, but to, to, to become that active bridge between us and God, depending on where you are, right? So the parable of the Good Samaritan, as you know, you know, even if you're not a Christian, you know the story because it is so infused in our culture. Even though it has nothing to do with prayer, if I really look at that story with a, with a sanctified imagination, if I can say it, one of the most intense prayer which has been ever prayed is probably in that story. It's not written there, but you really have to have that imagination. You really have to get into that story. Here is a man who is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, right? Let, let's put it in our context. Like somebody is going on a business trip from, I don't know, Los Angeles to Las Vegas, right? Along the way, they are attacked by robbers. I mean, that person is attacked by the robbers and beaten, battered, robbed, naked, almost going to die. Imagine somebody like that along the road as you drive to Las Vegas. Now, I don't know what this person's religion is. I don't know if, if this person even believes in God. But when you are caught in that kind of a situation, even if you are Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris, which are the, the most popular atheists out there, the one thing you will say, the only thing you can say at that point, my God, my God, save me, save me. Because at that point, your only help is in, way, uh, 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 in a way uh, a supernatural intervention, right? So imagine this person praying a desperate, desperate prayer. Now that has always been a challenge for me and as a pastor, especially as the one who teaches on prayer, I do pray too. I, I, I have a very regular prayer life. If not, I'm a hypocrite if I'm in a pastor and teaching about uh, prayer. But quite often, to be candid with you, when I pray to God about something, I always have a backup option, right? I go to God desperately, Lord, I, I really need this, but, but just in case... <laughs> Just in case it doesn't happen, I always have a plan B. And sometimes I have a plan C too, right? Because I'm trained as an engineer. I was a project manager. Anyway, that was my, you know, we, 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 are, we are trained to think that way. The point I'm trying to make is quite often when we say, when we pray, the, the sense of desperation and that sense of connecting with God is often absent in our prayers. It's very different from the prayer which is, being, which is rising from, from Palestine and, and, and Israel, Gaza, all that place right now, right? You know, it is, it is very interesting. This is why Jesus, when he started Beatitudes, he, he said a very atrocious thing. You know, he said, blessed are the poor. Now, what does that even mean, you know? 
That, that, that's so insensitive in a way that when you look at it that way, but, but, but Jesus said blessed are the poor because, see, in theological sense, when you say when you're poor, it doesn't really mean, doesn't just mean that you just lost all your money. So if you really understand the Hebrew context, um, you know, I, I did a series on Beatitudes, so, so coming back to memory, this particular part. You know, the, it comes from a Hebrew word, you know, ebion. So in, 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 in the time of uh, Jesus, there was a little colony in, in, in that area, Palestine. There was a group of people who were ebions. There's very different Ebionites, which is a cult, but these people are Ebions, which really means that they, it's like John the Baptist. So they forsook everything they had, they physically, materially owned, and clung to God as their only source of help and lived there. And according to the, the Hebrew custom, in order for you to be an Ebion or to be really poor, you had to go through three steps. Three steps, okay? Step number one is lose everything you have. It's very easy, right? <laughs> Just go bankrupt, you know? So that, that, that's the first step. In our, in our understanding, that's when you become poor. Yeah, lost all the money, lost my house, everything is gone, now I'm poor. No, 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 it's not that easy to become poor from a theological perspective. That's only step number one. The step number two is because you lost everything, you, will be, you have to be rejected by everyone. Now, that's very different. Losing your material possessions and losing your connection are completely different, right? Like, you know, many people who don't have anything have great support from their families and church communities, and they don't necessarily feel lonely. You know, I'm, I'm coming from India, and some of the largest slums in the world are in India. I remember going through one of them in the middle of the night. You know, this is when I used to live there, you know, and they, you know, we were watching a night, uh, night show movie and walking along through the slum. And it's so interesting to watch this parents and the children, like, you know, they all come out, they don't have a roof over their head, so they will, be, uh, they will be lying down by the curb, looking at the beautiful sky, and, you know, they were chatting to each other, they are laughing, they are giggling, they are joking. Actually, when you walk through that slum, I don't know how many of you have seen a movie called Slumdog Millionaire, uh, and if you see that movie, how disgusting the environment is, the, the first thing that stands out in that movie is an exuberant joy. Because they, they have each other. They are connected. And we also lived in downtown Los Angeles for almost a year. A few blocks away from us is Skid Row. When you walk around Skid Row, now that's a very different kind of slum. You don't see any giggling. You don't see any community. You don't see any laughter because people are ultimately so lonely. So that what I'm saying is very different about, you know, it's one thing about losing everything and it's quite different. You are being rejected by everyone. So step number two of being an Ebion or being poor is being, because you lost everything, you have to be rejected by everyone. Now, that is only the second step. Now, the third step is, 
Because you lost everything and because you are rejected by everyone, you cling to God as your only source of help. Now that is when you become poor. That's when you become ebbian. Now that is when you say a desperate prayer. God is not just your source of help. God becomes your only, only source of help. There is no plan B. There is no plan C. God becomes a person who is completely detached from the world in a sense and completely attached to God. Now that's when you really begin to pray. <laughs> that's, up until that time, we are saying a prayer. But at that moment, you start praying. And I believe this person in the story is really, really praying a serious prayer. Psalms 34, 6 says, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him. <laughs> now, the, the, the people who are writing Psalms are not, no poor people from the slums. They are David and Solomon, some of the richest people ever lived. But they, were, they could live in that attitude of being an Ebion. Even if you have everything, and I'm not asking you to sell everything and become desperately poor. Even if you have everything, it is a disposition. It's a spiritual disposition in which we can live, where we are completely detached from everything we possess and attached to God as our only, only source of help. So in so many ways, that story and that man who is lying in the desert waiting, inching his way to death might have prayed a prayer, a desperate prayer. Then comes the other characters in the story. There's a priest coming in. Now, priests and Levites are the people of prayer, right? They conduct prayer. They teach prayer. And I don't know if any, how many of you know this. The word priest even means a bridge builder between. So there are three offices of ministry, particularly in the Old Testament. A priest and a prophet and a king. The job of a prophet is to speak to people on behalf of God. And the job of a priest is just the opposite to speak to God on behalf of people. So the job of a priest is basically bringing people to God, bringing people's need to God. That's what a priest used to do. In Latin, there's a word called pontifex, which, is, which represents a, a, a priest. That literally means a bridge builder. So what is the bridge between people and God? That is prayer. That's why Jesus taught us to pray. That is the bridge between us, the material and the, super, and the, and the supernatural, right? Or the, the spiritual. Now that is the bridge. So, so here is the priest and the Levites who are people of prayer. That is their job to pray. But they are going fast and they didn't have even time to look at this man. They didn't even have time to attend this man. Now, I don't know why. Could be multiple reasons. But it is so ironic. The people who are supposed to be the people of prayer 
were too busy in their pursuit of prayer. You know, I've seen two kinds of people in my ministry. There's a group of people who are too busy to pray. And then there is another group of people who are too busy praying. They are too busy praying that they can't really connect with the the circumstances around, you know, we we can be so busy in our spiritual pursuit. We can be so busy in our ministry that we often forget the master. We can be so busy in our teaching pursuit, we can forget the ultimate teacher, right? That happens, especially to Christians on uh, on a Sunday. This has to be always a, it's a funny story. Oh, well. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, 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 I'm a very modest kind of a driver. And in our family, Joanne does most of the driving. She loves driving. Her dad loves driving and all that. So it helps me. But whenever, whenever I drive, she kind of jokes uh, because I'm a slow driver. That's what she says. I go very slow. Uh, sometimes people kind of tell, you know, anyway. But yeah, <laughs> having said that, because I drift into some other reality when I drive, when I, when I drive and I think, you know, that's not the point. But even though I'm a very slow driver, I got two speeding tickets right after we came to Canada, we immigrated to, to the U.S. And I remember both time I got the speed, speeding tickets, I was going to church. Right? So when you go to church, you remember Sunday, Sunday coming to church is almost always a hassle, you know, getting the kids dressed or, you know, you get yourself dressed and getting ready, this and that. Each time, and I remember I have a cop who is a very close friend in Canada, again, a church we used to attend called Bayview Glen. It was right in, a, in an intersection, four streets, actually, in that junction. And, uh, and he's, he used to say that they would intentionally put traffic cops on a Sunday morning on all that four area because they know that is the one day they get to write a lot of tickets to catch all those Christians who are kind of rushing into the church. Seriously. And you can, I'm, I'm sure now this time there, you know, they might be waiting there. The point I'm trying to make is sometime in our pursuit of prayer and sometime in our spiritual, spiritual inclinations, we can forget the very thing that we are supposed to attend right in front of our eyes. That happens to church people. That happens to priests and the Levites very often. Now that brings us to the third character or the hero of that story, which is the Samaritan. What does Samaritan teach us about prayer? See, Samaritan became the best example of prayer by becoming an answer to someone else's prayer. See, one of the ways we can pray is by becoming an answer to somebody else's prayer. What do I mean by that? See, in the prayer circle, you often hear this word called intercessory prayer, intercession. I almost used to wonder, why should I pray for somebody else? I mean, especially if they are Christians, right? You know, they can pray themselves. They are close to God. And in some cases, the people I'm praying for are have a closer walk with the Lord than I have. 
So why should, why do, you know, is there some kind of a majority polling? God is, you know, looking at how many people are praying for this person. So the more people pray, I'm going to attend. Is it some kind of a, we are flexing our spiritual muscle to show that there is a majority formation out there. Why did Jesus ask us to pray for other people? Now, I think my understanding is simply that when we pray for somebody else, something really happens in us if we are really serious about that prayer. I'm not talking about doing the checklist. Oh, okay, I did this and I did this, I did pray. No, when I pray for somebody else, I have always seen that something radically changes deep inside me. Because an actual intercessory prayer is when you really feel the other person's pain, their angst, their suffering, or in a proverbial sense, putting yourself in their shoes. Now, when that happens, something deep inside changes us. And very often in that prayer, we realize that this particular thing we are praying for I can respond to that need. Actually, God doesn't even have to be involved. Now, this person is praying for a place to live. Well, I know somebody who is renting a house. Well, this person is looking for a a mode of transportation. Well, I might be able to loan my car to this person for a while. Now, the point I'm trying to make is, sometime when you pray, when you pray for somebody else, in its deepest sense, and if you really truly mean intercession as a sort of incarnation, incarnation basically is what Jesus did for us. Although he existed in the form of God, he humbled himself, he emptied himself and coming down in our form. That is intercession. That is what happens in an intercessory prayer. Even though I am in my form, when I pray, this, pray for this person, I empty myself and entering into that person's shoes and feel their pain and angst. And then I realize that, huh, the answer to that person's prayer could be me, could be someone else around me. See, one of the most difficult, what we call apologetic questions we get is, why does Why are people suffering in this world? Very often people ask this. Why are people suffering in this world? Now, the answer could be very simple. And I go to God and say, Lord, there is so much suffering in this world. We need to do something about it. And they say, and and it's almost like God looking back at me and say, Matthew, why are you asking me? Why are you asking me? I have given you the resources. You know, the, the wealth that is accumulated in Los Angeles alone can feed the hunger of some of the countries outside the world for years to come, right? And there is on one side, you have Bel Air, where it's extremely wealthy people. And then on the other side, you have Skid Row on the other side. And both of these people are asking God, why there is suffering? Why are people hungry? Why are people, hello? The the answer is right here. See, we are the answers. We are God's answers to a crying world. 
We are God's answers to a dying world. There is a responsibility that God has given to us to pray with our eyes wide open. (laughs) That is the first lesson you learn in Sunday school. Close your eyes before you pray. Now, maybe this parable is teaching us to open it wide when you pray, especially when when we pray for others, when we pray for a neighborhood, when we pray for a country and culture. Maybe there is, the answer is already there. We might be the answer God has already placed in this culture to, to be the best testament of God's witness. So as I conclude, my challenge to you, I'm not here to do some kind of virtue signaling. It's much easier for pastors to come here and do this generic sermon on loving other people and helping other people. But I want us to think of an instance where you could be an answer to somebody else's prayer. I'm pretty sure there is something in your life. See, this man, this good Samaritan, not only that he created a solution by sending this man to the inn, before that, he did some first aid too, right? Some of the, sometimes the problem I have with the preachers who really pounce on the need to do justice and peace and to help other people is that we are always shouting at some kind of generic Issues like systemic racism and political problems and economic oppressions because these are vague, vague things. It's much easier for us to blame the systems. But this person, the Good Samaritan, was not taking the person directly to the inn, which is the institution in a way, but he did some first aid, like three things. He banned aid, he put a band-aid on him, bounded him, he poured oil on him. He poured wine on him. So this is, the, some, this is something quite often absent in, in, from our pulpit to, for us to think. There could be something before we blame the politicians, before we blame racism or whatever that is in the society. It is much easier to speak about that kind of stuff as opposed to think about what I could do. That is why I often very, I cringe when I speak. We, you know, we have two cars. Then we have a, you know, I have an admin assistant who doesn't have a car, who takes subway. Sometimes, you know, I wonder, I have a motorcycle too, so should I use it? Should I? No, but I, need, I have a back issue, so I cannot always ride the motorcycle. So I try to justify us having that two cars. What I'm saying is that we all have, there could be something, there is some place we could be able to pour some oil and wine and maybe Band-Aid for someone else's problem. Maybe within this pews, we hear it itself, right? And maybe outside to be a good Samaritan. See, the best gift we can give to our neighbors is Jesus. As simplistic as it sounds. I remember we, you know, this is my conclusion, but I remember we, in Canada, we we are Canadian citizens, by the way. We We still are in the transition to the American system in a way. But um, when we, we, we had new immigrants and we lived in a neighborhood 
called Leeside in Toronto, Canada. And if you want to Google it, it's a very upscale neighborhood. We happen to live there because our church happened to in, invest in, anyway, that's a different story. But uh, <laughs> so I, I remember it was a very, very white neighborhood, upper class. And we were the first people of color moved into that neighborhood. But even to this point, we have lived in four different countries in 11 different places, you know, we have moved uh, along. But that place is close to our heart because we were treated like family by these amazing people. We never really felt that we are somehow, so, so we wanted to do something for them. We wanted to, what, what is the gift we can, we can give to them? We almost always looked like the Samaritans in that neighborhood. In a way, we kind of stuck out like, a, like sore thumbs, right? So, so we wanted to contribute to this neighborhood. These are amazing people. If, the, if we leave for a vacation, they will come and mow our lawn. They will shovel our snow. They will replace our bulbs outside. You know, these are wonderful people. They will never come to church because they are all burned by the churches, because they are all culturally Christians, right? So I remember Joanna and I would say, what could we contribute to this, this community? So we would throw out this barbecues at our back, backyard. It's, it's, it's a typical barbecue, but we, we buy this tandoori. You know, that's a tandoori is an Indian, Indian spice. Basically, it's an Indian oven. It doesn't matter. But we buy, <laughs> we buy this tandoori paste from Indian store and paste it on the typical barbecue and call it tandoori barbecue. They all love it. They all love the exotic <laughs> flavor of this. And they will all come from, you know, they, they will not come to church, but they will come to our backyard for our tandoori barbecue. Wonderful people. And they all know that I'm a pastor. They say, do you want to say a prayer before you start? You know, so they allow me to, to say a prayer. So it was fine. And then they would say, hey, do you want to say something like a devotion? Then we did a devotion. Then we did a little worship. And then we did an entire set of alpha course uh, starting from our neighborhood. And I remember that probably, and even now, 11 years since we left, if we go there, they are still upset that we left them. They say, well, you said you are going to Fuller to do a two-year program. You are going to come back. That's what you said. Why are you still there? You know, so they want us back because I think the best gift we could give them was that alpha course at that tandoori barbecue. And we, we didn't, we, I mean, they asked us to speak about Jesus. They did. All we could do was just by, that was the answer to the prayer that neighborhood was looking for. The point I'm trying to make is, this is not just about selling everything you have and giving it to the poor people. This is not about just, you know, uh, throwing your fist in the air and create the new social justice movement. No, that's all institutional. But we can still pour wine. We can still pour oil in somebody's wound. We can band aid them. We can be an answer to someone else's prayer, even right within the pew. And as I close in prayer, I'm going to give you a moment of silence for you to think, who is that person? Who are you praying for? Can you hear someone else's prayer? Let's pray. Father God, the awesome responsibility that you have placed on our shoulders each time we utter the word prayer is so profound 
that we shudder each time we open our mouth to say, our Father in heaven. Thank you for the privilege to call you dad. Help us to be your children. Help us to carry your DNA. Help us to exemplify what you have done on the cross in our neighborhood. The culture is so thirsty. We are bombarded by the messages from the politicians and the celebrities. But here we are on our road, see the people who are desperately crying out for help. Lord, we are going to stop here. We are going to become an answer to the prayer of our neighborhood. Bless us to be your community. Bless us to be your family and help us to mirror what you have accomplished on the cross for humanity around us. In Jesus' name, amen.